Welcome to the latest episode of our Early Career Publishing Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and a special thank you to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for enabling us to be here. I'm Meredith Adenolfi, coming to you from Boston, and I'm joined by Sara Grimma in London. Hi, Sara. Hi, Meredith. It's great to be here again. How are you? Doing well, thanks. So for today's episode, we're going to continue with our series of brief primers to help our audience better understand the essentials in scholarly communications. In our last episode, Andy Douglas walked us through the basics of the role of sales in our industry. And today, we're happy to be joined by Alexis Colella to talk about the critical role of marketing and what we all need to know about it. Alexa is a product manager at Research Square, and in a moment, she's going to tell us a little bit more about her background, but she has a lot of really great experience to bring to this conversation. So I want to welcome Alexa. It's great to have you here today. Hi, thank you. It's really great to be here. So I gave you a very brief introduction, but maybe we can start with just having you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career to this point. Yeah, I'd love to. So right now I am a product manager for professional services at Research Square and AJE. I most recently was at the University of Illinois Press as their marketing manager for journals. So I think, you know, marketing has played a really big role in my career so far. I was there for seven years and, you know, it was a really, really wonderful place to work and a place to learn. And it taught me a lot of really important skills. Right now, what my primary role is, like I said, product manager, I work primarily with post-publication services like research promotion and communication, and then some of our higher touch editing products and grant services So really broad set of products, and they really get to let me sort of flex a little bit and have a lot of fun and be really creative, which is what I was really looking for in a role. Great. Thanks for that introduction. That's all going to be really useful as we ask some of these basic questions about the industry. So if we can just back up a little bit and speak kind of generally here, what do people in marketing do? And maybe you can touch on some of the different roles that exist in the marketing function or some of the different products or areas that somebody with a marketing focus might cover. Yeah, of course. So it's really interesting because I think when people hear the word marketing, they think sales a lot of the time. You know, I think sales, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that may disagree with me on this, but sales is kind of a branch of marketing. And then, you know, there are a couple other sections of marketing or segments of marketing, one being communications, which I think a lot of people also think is one of the primary components of marketing because that's what they see, right? So they see the communicators, they see the social media managers, they see the, the content managers and the content creators. And then another big part of marketing is the market research and the audience understanding and the stakeholder understanding. So a big role that I had in marketing manager for journals at the University of Illinois Press was understanding libraries, right? And so as far as those roles are concerned, yes, you've got your sales roles and yes, you've got your social media manager, you've got your content creator. And then you also have people that may manage databases of contacts. And it depends on the size of your organization. Some very small organizations might have one person in marketing. That's Their role is really limited in scope to what they have time for. And then you may have in larger organizations, people with very, very strictly defined roles that will be able to handle more narrow projects. Like I said, the database manager or CRM manager may handle the contact management system, you know, and you may also have regional salespeople, you may have library relations people in marketing, you may have, you know, data analysts in your marketing department also. So 
marketing in and of itself is a department where you can have any number of roles that are just related to reaching certain audiences and making sure that the products that you have are fitting their needs. That's a great overview. I think it'll be useful for our audience to know just how many roles there actually are that are kind of encompassed by the marketing umbrella. And also a really nice tie in to the previous episode we did on sales to sort of distinguish the two that they're related, but they often get conflated and that's not the case. I'm wondering if just a quick follow up on this here for our audience. Marketing manager is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with. It's sort of one of the job functions in marketing that you hear a lot about in our industry. Can you just talk a little bit about what a typical marketing manager might do, for example? Sure. I mean, it really is going to depend on the size of your organization. In my former organization, we had two marketing managers. We had one that was press-wide marketing manager and sales director, and then I was the marketing manager for journals. And so in my role... I focused really heavily on trying to figure out the best way to position our products, our journals, so that we could serve our societies and the audiences that depend on that content. I was much less sales focused and much more service focused, just because I truly believe that if you are service focused, if you are outcome focused in terms of making sure that your product is the best that you can offer your customers, those sales are going to happen naturally and they're going to happen more honestly. You know, I think sales is a critical role where they're articulating that service to the customer. I had 37 journals in our sort of portfolio. And so that didn't leave a whole lot of time for other marketing manager activities. But ideally, a marketing manager would oversee a lot of activities that are going on. The communication with customers, they would maybe oversee the sales team, they would oversee the content creation team, they may even do some content creation themselves, depending on Again, the size of the organization. I also did some content creation. I did some society management. We also launched a podcast at my time there when we had a marketing assistant. My marketing assistant, Elizabeth Hess, was amazing. And she launched a podcast and it was incredible. She did such a good job uh, of identifying the conversations that were really important to our readers and to our organization. So it's a broad scope and it really just kind of depends on how much time you have and, and if you have people that report to you and all of that. Great. Thank you. So Alexa, why is this job important for our industry? I think it has a lot of really critical roles people don't really understand what publishers do. And so I think one piece that's really critical for marketers to do is to, in some ways, describe the value of the publisher, describe the value of the content, describe the value of the author, and to do so in a way that is pointed in the right direction. You know, try and help people understand And not just lay people, not people outside our industry, but even people within our industry. You know, what does this piece of knowledge contribute to our industry? What does it contribute to academia? What does it contribute to scholarship? What does it contribute to science? What does it contribute to the world? And I think if I'm going to give the broadest answer possible, I think that is the most important role of marketing is to fundamentally and holistically communicate why all we do matters. More specifically, you know, I think it's important for us to drill down and say, you know, here are some things that are really missing. Here are some audiences that we could intersect with. I think that in a lot of ways, authors don't always understand how broadly their work could be applicable. And we found this, I think, during COVID. 
a lot of history came up, right? And we realized that we're going through some things that people have been through and what can we learn from that? So I think there's a lot of trying to understand just what's going on in the world and what we can do to contribute to that. That's a really valuable answer, I think, because I suspect a lot of people would have expected you to say, raise the visibility of a journal, raise the visibility of a platform. But I think you've gone a lot deeper than that and actually explored why it's important for the people that this community serves. And so your point about helping people understand what this piece of knowledge contributes to science, society, our industry, the world, I think that has really resonated with me. Oh, well, thank you. I think really goes a long way to express exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. So thank you. On to the next question, which is how have new and emerging business models and ways of publishing, such as open access, changed your job? Or have they? (laughs) Perhaps they haven't. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I should come out and say that I'm just like really love open access. In any way that you can be, I am pro open access because like how can you really say that knowledge should fundamentally be gated because, you know, being against that is in some ways saying, you know, knowledge should be gated. The issue then is how do we do so in such a way that the quality of our content, you know, continues to be really high quality because there are things that we do, publishers do, that are so integral to maintaining the quality of the research, maintaining the quality of the content, making it accessible and making it readable and making it distributable. And those things are really also important for the accessibility and access too. And so in a lot of ways, I think that it's made us take a seat and rethink things as we've always done them because how you market an open access journal might be a little bit different than how you market a subscription model journal and maybe not even communicate about it, but market it to libraries or if it's a subscribe to open, you know, I think we've all had to take a step back and try to learn about the models and what they mean and what the implications are of those models and how can we adapt them to our specific needs. I used to be in the humanities, which is a very challenging environment for open access, particularly because the tale of value in a humanities article is so long. You know, in STEM fields, you really get the most value as a publisher out of that article in the first three years. When I was doing royalty reports for some of our titles, like the Journal of English and Germanic Philology, some of the most valuable articles to both the journal and the press were up to 100 years old, right before they would hit that public domain. And so trying to account for the lifetime value of an article in the way that we adapted some open access models to make free content possible for our titles was to really have to consider, are we leveraging the future sustainability of our publisher to appease certain requirements or certain expectations now? And it was really important that we didn't. So actually, it's fascinating that you're talking about the tale of value for humanities, because I don't think that's something that we've previously explored. Can you talk a little bit more about the decision-making that you had to go through to decide whether or not to flip a humanities journal, for example, to adhere to an open access mandate where the value potentially lay two to 50 years from now, and so therefore you wouldn't necessarily be able to derive any value from it? Yeah, so the first thing that I sat down and thought about was, do our editors want this? Even if they don't want this, is this something that we are necessarily going to have to find a way to accommodate 
Because one thing that's also can be kind of frustrating with humanities publishing is we were very committed to traditional ways of doing things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, except in a rapidly changing environment in which the sustainability of your organization kind of depends on agility. And so you do have to have a certain amount of agility and ability to pivot baked in to your processes. And so the first thing I thought about, is this something our editor is going to want? And if so, if yes, we represented a huge range of subjects, anywhere from psychology to sports history, which very much intersected with kinesiology, to visual arts and dance. And so my assumption was that half of these editors are not going to care. The other half are going to be really interested. And so if yes, they wanted this, that we were going to have to bake in a certain amount of flexibility. And so we actually went with a hybrid model with a optional APC. You could request it if you wanted it. I created a formula that took into account our revenue streams and some projected article value based on the current value of articles for that journal. So each APC was different for the journal, which is common. Yeah. So, I mean, that was really something we had to consider. And so I would say that there was a certain amount of sort of stakeholder conversations that we had to have. First, we had to convince people at the press that this was a need. I was not convincing at first. I, however, went back. I did my thing. I laid out a proposal. I laid out the way that I was going to handle it. And so we started that. And then we had to do a certain amount of stakeholder convincing for our editors in our society saying, you know, we think that this is going to be an important shift in journal publishing in the future. It would be really great if we could implement a hybrid model for your journal. The one thing that we did not implement is a rights retention because that would have required a new legal agreement that had to go through lots of steps working through university press. And so we did not do that. Although I understand that's a very important component of open access to be called open access is that the rights have to remain with the author. We didn't do that, but we did allow authors to pay an APC that would make their article free. And that was really important for our European authors in many cases because they did have those mandates. I mean, that was another argument we had that we said, if European authors are going to have to publish open access, we are going to lose European authors by not offering this kind of option. And so eventually we managed to convince most of our editors and most of our societies and They were agreeable to it. We did not flip any journals, but we did then begin to recruit some fully open access titles. So I certainly would never have imagined that marketing would play such a key function in that conversation. And yet there we are. As a follow-up to that, of course, you're now at Research Square, which is completely different. We're talking about preprints. And so can you talk a little bit about how being at a preprint server has changed your job or the different things that you need to consider? So I work kind of across both. Half my products are on the Research Square side because, you know, Research Square is fundamentally kind of a research and development idea, right? Because preprints are becoming, I won't say universal, but they're becoming so accepted that I don't think they could be called R&D anymore. But my post-publication services are in that space. And I think there's a real connection between the role of a preprint and the role of research communication. And so, you know, I think in many ways, the role of a preprint is to help the author both refine their work, use case test it, right? You're putting the preprint up there 
because it is almost finished research. It hasn't been peer-reviewed. You still have some legitimacy or some verification concerns, but ultimately it is a pretty huge milestone in the publication process. It's submitted or it is posted. It is out there and it can be talked about. Right. And so the talked about part is the part that I'm really interested in. I'm going to trust journals to do their job. And, you know, I know there's lots of conversations about predatory ones and all of that, but the talking about it, the ability to talk about it, the ability to communicate about it, and the ability to learn from that research when it's posted is really what I am interested in. And that kind of drives my interest in these promotional products or these research communication products at Research Square. Thank you. And that actually brings me into a question around the customer voice and the customer journey. Can you talk about the importance of the customer journey to what you do and how you work to access that and bring it into your work? I think there's a really fine line to walk here with the customer journey because we want to make sure that customers understand the value or that customers are able to achieve an outcome with whatever it is we do. And so you have to kind of say, I think this is what the customer needs. How do we create it and deliver it in a way that's going to be either seamless to them to use it or to understand its value or valuable enough to them to say, we're going to change our behavior in order to use this. And so that's also what's very interesting about the post-publication space is that the norms of the pre-publication space are very well understood by authors. There's mentorship in that space, you know, your PI or your mentor, your advisor has published before. They know the requirements. They know about how good your paper has to be. They know the gaps in the field, right? So there's this kind of inherent understanding about how to publish and then that's passed on. There are no norms in this post-publication space. It's constantly changing. It's chaotic. And trying to find a way to make our customers successful in that space is a real challenge because none of them have the same behavior. And so the customer voice is very important because it helps us really nail down where the expertise and where the skills are missing so that we can create products that help them fill that gap. Alexa, that was great. That last section took us in some directions we didn't expect, which was great. We learned a lot from that. For our last few questions, we wanted to kind of bring it back to you. So What would you consider to be the most important achievement of your career and why? It's not my most important achievement, but I think it's my favorite. And I don't even know if it's an achievement, but I was at the SSP meeting in 2019 and I was sitting at this unsession, which they haven't repeated. And I think they should because I live for the unsessions, which are these little groups where it's basically just like a guided discussion between attendees. And there were a couple people from SSP there, a couple people involved in SSP. Ben Mudrak, who's at ACS, was there. And Yal Fitzpatrick, who's now at PNAS. One of the questions that was asked was, what does SSP need to improve? And I got my, you know, my big girl pants on and I was just like, you guys suck at the humanities. <laughs> and I shouldn't have phrased it that way. I should have been a lot more diplomatic. But I was like, there's been one person here at this entire conference that could really speak to the humanities. I really think that this is a huge opportunity for SSP and a thing that really needs to be improved. And so then Ben invited me to join some committees. I went later that day and I joined the New Directions Committee. And since then, I have seen an explosion of humanities content and a real commitment to in humanities inclusion and understanding of the differences between humanities and STEM publishing. And I can't say that that was all me. Like I would never take credit for all of that, but 
I spoke my mind and some things happened and it's been really, really rewarding since because then I joined a committee and I made some really, really amazing friends who have helped me move into some really cool projects. And so I think I will say that's my favorite achievement or favorite moment in my career so far. I hope that kind of answers the question. It does. And that definitely qualifies as an accomplishment. That's a great story. It's nice to have a space where you can speak your mind and actually feel that it's okay to do so and that it actually can have an impact. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that impresses me about SSP so much. It's incredibly self-critical. And that sounds like a bad thing, you know, when you say it, but I think it is so important for us to continually be looking at how we can improve and continually looking at our weaknesses as well as our strengths, right? We should work towards our strengths. We should use those in the ways that we can. But if we recognize a weakness and there's space to improve it, and particularly people that can improve it, I think the way that SSP handles looking at its weaknesses and immediately seeks to improve them is just one of my favorite things about working with the organization. It really impresses me with its dedication to like a constant self-improvement, constant organizational improvement, constant desire to serve each and every one of its members. That's a great observation and something I definitely agree with from my own experience too. It's also a great segue into our last question, which is what advice would you give to young marketers who are coming up in the industry? I would not let industry norms and industry traditions dictate the way that you want to work. Of course, you're going to have to work in certain sort of limitations within your organization. But I really hope our next generation of marketers, our current generation of young marketers or early career marketers is really laser focused on bringing new things to the industry bringing new perspectives to the industry on finding ways that we can include more people and show our value to more people around the world. That would be the advice that I would have for any new marketers, any early career marketers is to never lose sight of what it means to communicate globally and inclusively and creatively about your work. That's a great piece of advice and a nice way to end this conversation. So thank you so much for covering such a wide variety of topics. Oh, of course. It was so fun. I love talking about this stuff. Absolutely. I have to echo Meredith here. Thank you so much for joining today, Alexa. It was great to have you and we really appreciate your insights. I particularly enjoyed your comments about the sheer breadth of jobs within marketing that are available, but also our discussion around open access and how it has changed the job and the many issues you had to think about when that transition was happening. I think, again, it goes back to the breadth and to the level of strategy and thought that's required to do many of the roles, which I think on the face of it, we sometimes look at marketing and we think, oh, it's journal marketing. You're just pushing out journals. So this has been fantastic. Meredith, what were your key takeaways? I agree that one of mine was just the sheer breadth of not only roles in the marketing function, but also different angles that someone in that space has to consider and all of the different conversations that someone in the function would be involved in and would contribute to. And actually the same thing came up in our sales focused conversation, just that these functions are involved in so much more than I think anybody in the industry realizes. So I appreciate that that was one of the things you brought to light. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's a huge job and it is not just, you know, sending tweets. 
No, and I think it's really important that that is made clear. So thank you so much for joining us today, Alexa, and thank you to everyone who listened. And we'll be back in a few months' time with our next episode. Mm-hmm.